Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. And welcome to Season 4. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Marcy and Andrew Spitzer. And this episode is generously sponsored by my parents, Ima and Abba, or Neil and Pam Weissman, as the rest of the world refers to them. They are the inspirations, but enough sap for one intro, especially because today's episode may make your hair stand up or your heartbeat thump a little quicker. Okay, folks, yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they are wrong. 30 seconds can either sound like no time at all or a ton of time. It's only 30 seconds. That's like half a minute, technically. But 30 seconds was all it took to devastate a nation. In under a minute, Palestinian terrorists killed 22 Israeli teenagers held hostage in a school as their parents and the defense minister waited helplessly outside. It was the worst attack on Israeli soil to date, a failure for the elite Sayeret Matkal unit that had been dispatched to rescue the hostages, an embarrassment for the Prime Minister Golda Meir less than a year after the embarrassment of the Yom Kippur War, and a shocking blow to the entire country. 22 Jewish children killed in the name of the state that was created to keep them safe. Was this the price of the Zionist dream? We talk a lot about pain on the show. Yes, Israeli history is rich and gorgeous and in many ways miraculous, but it's also heartbreaking. I have to say, this is one of the most difficult for me to tell. I want to warn you that this episode might be difficult to listen to, but it's also critically important. In the wee hours of May 13th, 1974, three men crossed into Israel from Lebanon loaded with machine guns hand grenades, and explosives. Depending on who you ask, they were dressed as either IDF soldiers or Israeli police. Their victims were meant to feel safe until they didn't. All three men were members of the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. If that name sounds familiar, it's probably because you're thinking of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a different terrorist group. But the DFLP were Marxists, whose stated aim was the formation of a single Palestinian state against all forms of class subjugation, where Arabs and Jews have the right to develop their national culture while being hostile to colonialism, imperialism, Zionism, and Arab-Palestinian reaction. Their rosy vision of a single, peaceful, democratic state may have been more convincing if their tactics didn't include murdering kids. Okay, Noam, I hear you saying... This is a cute crash course on Palestinian ideology, but let's get serious. Who cares what group they are part of or what they believed in? It's a fair question. Honestly, I think it both does and doesn't matter because on the one hand, 
the end result is the same. Innocent people being targeted, used, and murdered. On the other, I think it's important to understand the vast ideological differences between different Palestinian groups. From the start, Palestinians were ideologically fractured. Splinter group after splinter group making their own demands and having their own brands. And that, I think, is a big part of why we still don't have peace. They still have not had their Altalena moment. If you don't know what I'm referring to, what are you waiting for? Check out our episode on the Altalena. On the Palestinian side, there's still no one strong enough or influential enough to make peace with. But their Marxism wasn't the most interesting thing about these guys, no. The most interesting and horrifying thing about them was this. Two of the three were Israeli Arabs from Haifa. And at least one knew the north of Israel well. He had lived for a time in the northern Arab-Israeli village of Taiba and even worked at a restaurant in Sfat. You know, I believe that it's really hard to hate someone once you know them, once you've experienced their culture or learned their language. But these guys, I don't know, they're the exception. Two were Israeli. They spoke Hebrew. They knew Jews. And still, they were able to murder both Jews and Arabs without hesitating. All in the name of building a democratic, binational state. Lovely. So back to May 13th, 1974. The three men spent all of the previous day hiding in a cave. They moved only under cover of night, heading toward Ma'alot, a so-called development town, six miles from the Lebanese border. Most of the town's Jewish residents were poor North African immigrants, raising first-generation Israeli children in a Jewish state. But the terrorist first victims were not Jews. They were Arabs. At a quarter to midnight just before, May 13th bled into May 14th, Israel's 26th Independence Day, a small truck made its way up the road where the terrorists lurked. Inside were eight Arabs, a male driver and seven women on their way back from work. And actually, women is not the right word because three of the passengers were teenagers, kids. The terrorists flagged down the truck, but the driver didn't stop. So they opened fire, killing one woman and injuring every other person in the truck. The Israeli authorities called to the scene thought that this was the attack, that the terrorists had completed their mission. So they centered their search efforts near the border to catch the terrorists before they made it back to Lebanon. They didn't realize that the shooting was just part one, a small scale, hideous rehearsal before the main event. The three terrorists reached Ma'alot at 2.30 a.m., where a single light burned in the window of a small apartment building. This was the home of Yosef and Fortuna Cohen, and their three young children. Fortuna was heavily pregnant with their fourth. As the terrorists stomped through the building looking for victims, Yosef opened the door. He was killed instantly in a hail of bullets, providing just enough time for Fortuna to hide their deaf, mute, 16-month-old son Yitzchak, knowing he couldn't cry out. Her four and five-year-old were not as lucky. They must have heard the shots that killed their father. They must have cried and screamed as they too were shot along with their mother and unborn sibling. Of the entire Cohen family, only five-year-old Bia and baby Yitzchak survived. But the night wasn't over for the three terrorists. They had a third mission to complete. They were looking for a school. As they fled the Cohen's building in the early hours of the morning, they came across a local janitor. Remember, they were dressed as either IDF soldiers or Israeli police, and they spoke fluent Hebrew. He had no reason to be suspicious when they asked him for directions to the school. Not until they shot him and left him for dead. 
the Nativ Meir Elementary School should have been empty at 3.30 in the morning of Israel's 26th Independence Day, but it wasn't. Between 100 and 115 students from a religious school in Sfat, along with a few teachers, were bunking down there as part of an overnight field trip. Boys on the first floor, girls on the second. They shouldn't have been up there at all, according to the students. They were supposed to sleep outside, under the stars. But the northern part of the country was on high alert, so the students and their teachers had been diverted at the last moment from their original route and asked to bunk down somewhere safer. What a hideous, ugly irony. Here's one of the teachers describing their ordeal for the Israeli media. At first, I didn't know what to do. It was a matter of seconds. I pounded on the door. It opened. I ran towards the window and said, everyone after me, jump out the window. The boys on the first floor were lucky. It was easier for them to escape. Many of the teachers, terrified, jumped with them. But not everyone managed to flee. 85 students, two teachers, and a medic remained in the building with the three terrorists. The terrorists herded everyone into a classroom, which they booby-trapped, surrounding their hostages with explosives. Here's how survivor Shula Benjamin Rubin describes the next 16 hours. They made everyone sit in the classroom, 80-something kids, and we waited. They didn't let us talk. They didn't let us go to the bathroom at first. But after that, each time, they'd take three kids and put them toward a window in the corridor. They'd shoot between our feet, so we'd cry and scream to the government or to whomever was responsible for freeing the prisoners they wanted. The terrorists sent out a student with their demands. Israel would release between 20 and 26 terrorists being held as prisoners by 6 p.m., or else they'd blow up the school with everyone in it. To make matters even worse, the Israeli government was in something of a shambles. Prime Minister Golda Meir had resigned a month prior, profoundly disheartened by the failure of the Yom Kippur War in Israel's subsequent economic downturn. Israeli law dictated that her cabinet was forced to resign with her. The new government wasn't poised to take power until June, so the decision rested on a prime minister and a cabinet who knew they were on their way out. Every person in Golda's government was acutely conscious of their legacy. Do they want to be the government who let terrorists kill children? On the other hand, do they want to be the government that gave in to terrorist demands? The 76-year-old prime minister was actually willing to negotiate, insisting that one doesn't wage war on the backs of children. But her defense minister, legendary war hero Moshe Dayan, disagreed. The only way out of the situation, he argued, was to kill the terrorists and save the students. For Dayan, Israel would never be a weak country that bowed to terrorist demands. The cabinet debated for 14 hours. All the while, the students waited, knowing that any moment could be their last. Eventually, the Knesset agreed to the demands. They even brought 20 prisoners to the scene blindfolded and bound as though to prove they were serious. By some accounts, this is when the terrorists started dismantling the explosives. The students, though still terrified, breathed a sigh of relief. Soon their ordeal would be over. Soon they would get to go home. But as the Knesset negotiated with the three terrorists, the army's most elite unit was preparing to storm the building. You might remember Sayert Matkal from our episode on the Mossad last season. If you don't, go back and take a listen. The super elite commando unit had been around for less than 20 years, and yet their exploits were already this stuff of legend. Only a year before, they'd sneaked into Beirut, dressed in drag no less, and taken down several heads of the PLO. 
They were confident that they'd be able to storm a school, eliminate three terrorists, and save the hostages. They were wrong. 15 minutes before the 6 p.m. deadline, Sayeret Matkal made their way into the school from two separate entrances. A team of snipers watched their backs, ready to take out the terrorists. Tactically, it seemed like a good plan, but things went wrong almost immediately. The first team, which went in through the front doors, immediately took a volley of gunfire. And rather than engage in a protracted firefight, they threw a phosphorus grenade. Sounds efficient, right? But here's the thing about phosphorus grenades. In addition to burning their victims, they create a lot of smoke. Smoke that blinded the IDF snipers and the second Sayer Matkal team as they combed the school for the hostages. Blinded by the smoke, they went to the wrong floor. Worst of all, the snipers couldn't get a clear line on the terrorists. It took 30 seconds, maybe less, for the IDF to realize its mistake. But that 30 seconds was enough time for the DFLP. You're going home now, one of the terrorists reportedly said to the students. Then they opened fire. A hail of bullets, a clutch of grenades. In 30 seconds, 26 people, 22 of them students under the age of 17, were dead. Here's Shula Binyamin Rubin again. A lot of kids died. A lot were wounded. Whoever was able, we climbed on top of the bodies and jumped out the window and ran toward the soldiers if we could. Whoever couldn't was evacuated to a hospital. Sayeret Matkal eventually made their way to the right classroom, where they killed the terrorists. The sight that greeted them was like something out of a nightmare. A news broadcast from the next day described the scene. Broken furniture mingled with pieces of clothing, large bloodstains, cans of food and loaves of bread, a reminder of the trip that never finished. A silent witness to the drama that took place here. Then principal of the school, Shalom Ma'arti, described it like this. The whole classroom was full of blood. They threw grenades at them. There was hair stuck to the walls, the girls' hair. We had to scrape it off the walls. It was, it was horrible. Equally horrible were the funerals of the next day. 26 caskets, most holding children. Parents and relatives wailing, collapsing onto the earth. Hysterical relatives had to be restrained or comforted by the police. A group of demonstrators calling for the death penalty for terrorists and urging revenge surrounded the president and the deputy prime minister. Troops and bodyguards had to move in to protect them, and the chief rabbi was led away. Because how do you respond to something like this? How do you recover? It's been nearly 50 years and still the wound hasn't healed. Not for the families of the dead and not for the survivors whose trauma haunts them to this day. The global Jewish community was shocked. 10,000 people protested in New York, some even chaining themselves to the fence surrounding UN headquarters. A few even beat up the chairman of the Action Committee on American-Arab relations who happened to be passing by. But other communities chose a different path. You've probably heard of Chabad, also known as Lubavitch Hasidim. In the wake of Ma'alot, the Lubavitch Rebbe called on his community to step up their efforts to bring world Jewry closer to Judaism. Rabbi Yosef Hech was there on the first Shabbat after the massacre in Ma'alot. That Shabbat, I remember the Rebbe coming into the Fabrengen. His face was awesome. The Rebbe spoke about bringing the Jewish people to deeper their actions of Torah mitzvahs, especially Mitzvah Mezuzah. A mezuzah is a parchment scroll inked with biblical verses and affixed 
to the right doorposts of Jewish homes and institutions. Why? Check out the links in the show notes. And in response, the Lubavitch community took up the call. Big time. We decided to rent vans and go out to the streets with microphones. They would stop in the most busy corners. And there, young Chabad men would encourage fellow Jews to wrap tefillin or light Shabbat candles or stick mezuzot to their doorposts. Heck, you've probably seen these men around. Excuse me? Are you Jewish? Became their catchphrase. They spent their days doing all they could to bring their fellow Jews just a little bit closer to Jewish ritual, to mitzvot. They called their trucks tanks against assimilation. And to me, this kind of image is strangely beautiful. A tank can maneuver around any obstacle, even an obstacle as big as ignorance, apathy, or assimilation. This was how they responded to the murder of teenagers, not with violence, not with anger, and it's so hard, but with a renewed commitment to Jewish education and pride. And I like to think that the students who were religious would have approved each mitzvah sending the Jewish people a little bit closer to God. So that's the story of Ma'alot. And here are your five fast facts. Number one, Israel approached its 26th birthday in a bit of a quarter-life crisis. The Yom Kippur War had left the country severely shaken. The prime minister resigned in April, but the new government hadn't yet taken control. Number two, shortly before Israel's Independence Day, three men from the DFLP sneaked through the Lebanese border into Israel, heavily armed and disguised as Israeli soldiers or police. Two of the men were Israelis who spoke fluent Hebrew. Number three, the three men started their killing spree by shooting up a van of Israeli Arabs, killing a 27-year-old woman. But instead of going back to Lebanon, as Israeli police had assumed, they went further into Israel. Their next stop was an apartment block in Ma'alot. There, they killed almost the entire Cohen family, leaving behind a 16-month-old boy and a badly wounded 5-year-old girl, then fled into the night. Number four, their next stop was an elementary school, where they found over 100 religious high school students and their teachers bunking down as part of a field trip. Though some managed to escape, 85 were taken hostage. The terrorists demanded the release of tens of prisoners, most of them Palestinians. If the government failed to comply, they'd blow up the school with everyone in it. And number five, Prime Minister Golda Meir was ready to negotiate. She didn't want to be remembered as the Prime Minister who fought a war on the backs of children. Her defense minister, Moshe Dayan, disagreed, so they split the difference. The government agreed to release the prisoners, but shortly before the deadline, an elite army unit entered the school to rescue the hostages. They failed. In under a minute, the terrorists murdered 22 students and four adults, leaving behind a wound that has never fully healed. I've usually got a lesson prepared after the five fast facts and say this line, which you've come to know by heart. Those are the facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. But today's lesson isn't from me. It's from 15-year-old Ilana Turgaman, which some sources call Ilana Ne'eman, who was murdered in Ma'alot along with 21 of her classmates. Shortly before her death, she'd written her parents a letter, which I'm going to read you in translation. I don't know if Ilana was born this wise or if her last few harrowing hours on earth granted her an unusual sensitivity. I do know we can all learn from her final words, no matter how old we are or what our circumstances. Here they are. Dear mom and dad, hello. 
It's 11.25 a.m. and I don't know how many hours I have left to live. So I'm writing to you. I'm sorry, Mom, that I didn't listen to you and went on this trip. Yes, I know you didn't force me to stay, but you were worried and preferred I didn't go. But I went because I knew what I needed to do. I wanted to say thank you for the education you gave me and for the beautiful years I had, all thanks to you. Right now I'm 15 and a half, and if I'm fated to die, I'll die quietly with honor and faith. Yes, faith which you gave me. You always told me that without faith, life is dull and a lot more painful. And now, in these difficult hours, I have a lot of faith, and I also believe you were right. Life doesn't give much to a person. He can't choose much, not when or where he'll be born or to which parents. But I was happy. I was a religious girl in the land of Israel with wonderful parents. You, I didn't have many hours. I didn't have that privilege, and I guess I won't. But thanks to you, I passed tests of honor, both in the small, dark hours and in the regular, everyday hours. Mom, don't cry too much when I die. When Rifka has her baby, name it after me, Ilan or Ilana. Give the baby the education you gave me so he'll be strong and know his life's purposes and why he was born. I know your lives were difficult before and after I was born and that when I die, they'll be even harder. But always remember that the suffering always brought with it hours of joy and satisfaction. I'm not crying, my eyes are dry. It doesn't hurt that I'm going to die and I'm not sorry. When I say Shema Israel in my last hour, I'll think about you. I was supposed to go on this trip. We can't stop living life. The danger lies everywhere, and if heaven makes a decree, it will happen. It's better to live morally and to be killed for the sake of sanctifying God's name. Please give this letter, which will be my last ever, to all our relatives to read and send them my love. Wish all my friends and neighbors the best of luck. This is my last chance. In another hour, I'll leave you. Goodbye forever. With much love, your daughter, Ilana. Alana, this episode is dedicated to you, and I wanted to make sure that it was not just your relatives who read this letter, but the thousands of people who listened to our podcast. Ilana was killed a few hours after she wrote that letter. Just as she requested, her sister Rivka did name the baby after her. Her nephew Ilan Shohat was Israel's youngest ever mayor, presiding over the city of Tzfat, where his aunt was born and buried. I don't know if he grew up knowing his purpose as Ilana had hoped, but I do know that Ilana was right about one thing. We can't choose our circumstances or how much time we have, but we can choose how we spend our small hours. We can choose to live with honor, even in the darkest moments. So in the words of American poet Mary Oliver, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Whew, that was intense. Thank you all for listening. If you haven't yet, I'm begging you, be in touch with us. I love being in touch with you. Shoot me an email at noam at jewishunpack.com. Now it's time for our final segment. You know what's coming, Israel Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. We get the best emails from you guys, and we want to share them with the world. This week, I want to highlight an awesome letter from an awesome listener who asked we don't use his real name, so let's call him Jamil. Here's what Jamil wrote. Hello, Dr. Weissman. Jamil, call me now, please. I hope this email reaches you well. I'm one of your dedicated podcast listeners from Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much for providing such a wonderful explanation of Israeli and Zionist history for laymen like me. It's truly captivating and provides so much more context that is graspable for all, unlike traditional news outlets. 
Perhaps I'm not the typical demographic or target audience of Unpacked. I'm an Australian born to Afghan refugees who fled the Soviet invasion. Ever since, Afghanistan has been overrun by jihadist militant groups. In fact, the last Afghan Jews sadly left the country after the Taliban's return to power last August, erasing the country's diversity. Today's new generation of Afghans, both inside the country and in the diaspora, are struggling to connect to their country, culture, and identity. In addition to four decades of war misinformation on social media, is disseminating polarizing historical narratives revised and simplified to fuel identity politics. I want to challenge the misinformation the way Open Door Media and Unpacked does through a nuanced and honest approach. Jamil, as soon as I got this email, I knew we had to open season four with it because it's so freaking powerful, I was blown away. Who would have thought that an Afghan listener from Sydney, Australia would connect to Israeli history of all things and use it as a model for how to teach young Afghans the beauty of their legacy, their culture, their history? Seriously, Jamil, this letter really impacted me. And I thank you. Listeners, if you have thoughts, comments, suggestions, ruminations, whatever to share, don't hesitate. Be like Jamil. Send me a message at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, blah, 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 all the places. And one more time, don't hate me. Write to me at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Your email might even get on the show. This episode was produced by the great Rifki Sturt. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz and Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week.